Go Chelsea tomorrow morning. Beat Man United. Beat Arsenal the week after. Chelsea forever. Chelsea forever. Check one, two. Check one, two. I'm kidding. I might switch to Arsenal next year. I'm forever blowing bubbles. Does anyone hear of epilepsy? Because you might have a seizure. Hello, and welcome to the Addison Recorded, the official podcast of the Addison Recorder. I'm Meryl Williams, and I am joined here by... Gina Waters. And we have a very extremely overfull pod yes. port today. So we're going to go around. There's a lot of people here, some people you've met before, some you haven't. Um, but I'm going to throw it to our very first guest. Lee, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Um, well, my name's Lee Denrick, and uh, yeah. Hi there, this is Kevin Triscuit coming to you from the pod fort. Andrew Rostin. Uh, from the crap part of the pod fort, Alex Bean, <laughs> back from episode seven. From the barely inside of the pod fort at all, this is Travis Cook, editor-in-chief at the Addison Recorder. Welcome, everybody. Every episode that we've recorded of this podcast, I swear the podcast or the pod fort has gotten bigger. <laughs> And this is the biggest that it's ever been, and so yeah, we've got a lot of people in here. But um, these are all, uh, yeah, like previous guests, fan favorites, or at least you know favorites of the house. <laughs> so yeah, we're really glad you're here, and we're going to talk about the season finale of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, episode thirteen, Kimmy Makes Waffles. Yes, and this one we were just talking about, it's easy to mix up this episode with the one right before it because it's all like the courtroom stuff and the reverend stuff. But you remember last time we were talking about my weird obsession with where this was filmed? What, what's yes. Dernsville? I looked it up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's Nyack, New York, which is, I guess, upstate you New York. It. So I, yeah. yeah, right up the Hudson. So if anyone was curious, that's where they filmed I, the Dernsville scene. Did they even do exteriors? I remember listening to your episode mm-hmm. of podcast. The, the courthouse that they show them coming out of is the Nyack courthouse. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. when you mentioned that on the podcast the other day, I remember listening to that and just being like, couldn't they have just shot it in Brooklyn? It all looked like a studio to me. Yeah, no, the shots in Brooklyn are actually the streets of Brooklyn. Um, obviously, the interiors are sets in the Silver Cup Studios, I assume. But, um, yeah, the Nyack stuff, like the when, uh, what's her face, Jacqueline takes off in the cop car. Like, that's all that stuff. Like, in the courthouse, that's that's Nyack, New York. Yeah, interesting. Very cool. Thank you for doing the research on that. Mm-hmm. I feel like you and Tina Fey are just, like, constantly on the same brainwave. You yes. just, yeah, you know I, her so well. <laughs> I'd say it's a slightly more believable uh, Indiana than when Parks and Recreation would shoot in Pasadena yeah. and pass it off as uh, Indiana, which was never quite real. Yeah, especially the City Hall building with that huge open, like, like entryway, that archway that was, like, you only would build a courthouse or a City Hall building like that in a temperate climate you would not make that in indiana i'm pretty sure it actually is pasadena city hall yeah i think it is yeah boom sitcom research yeah and the the palm the palm trees also on parks and recreation sometimes yeah. took me out of it all right that's enough bad mouth in parks and rec guys <laughs> hey it is one of my favorite shows i'm not bad mouthing i'm just saying i mean how hard would it be to fly to indiana and shoot some scenes pretty hard <laughs> <laughs> kt will not stand for this it's called Climate guys, and we don't got it. (laughs) So they're subbing in climates for different ones. Can we all just accept that climate change is real for the television (laughs) show, please? Can we just can we just accept that? So, what were some of the highlights for you guys for this episode or for this finale of the this season one? 
John Hamm. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, where do we start? I was going to say, my only slight issue with the season finale is that the opening pre credit scene with John Hamm's home videos is so good, but everything else almost pales in comparison. It's a pretty good medley. There's a bunch of stuff on there. What were some of the sample things that he was doing in that? Karate, karate, karate. Yes. Karate. Which uh, I'll say before Gina does is seemingly a direct reference to 30 Rock because that was what uh, Will Arnett would say when he worked out in his hotel room. Karate. (laughs) I just only regret that John Hamm was not wearing a shorty robe. Well... Doing his karate. Although I did enjoy the R&B thrusting at the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. True fact. Yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> no, I liked his uh, guitar rendition of Summer Nights. <laughs> the acoustic rendition? Yeah. That, was, that was pretty priceless. I'm having such a hard time separating this one from the preceding episode in my head. I'm trying to remember of stuff I liked. Yeah, this one was definitely a carryover of that previous episode. I have a little bit of that, too. I liked that there was another uh, gavel joke. With the, he was just making a birdhouse. You hear the banging. It looks so sorry. I'm just finishing up this birdhouse. Also, does I have a note here that there was an ISIS joke? There sure was. But I don't remember what was it. It was in John Hamm's mm-hmm. video where he says like he's going to form a group and he's going to call it ISIS. But he says ISIS and then the video cuts right away. Like they shut it off right at that point. Which makes you wonder: Is he forming a spy agency or a terrorist organization? Or some other Richard Wayne, Gary Wayne head trip we'll never know about. Presume just naming it after the Egyptian god. <laughs> I love seeing the whole cast down in the bunker, though. Like, we learned so much down in the bunker that they would never have revealed above ground. So, um, when she knows English, mm. oh, I thought yeah. it was one of the best jokes of the whole finale. She just speaks perfect English. And then they call back, I don't remember her name. Is it Donna Maria? Donna Maria, yes. Yeah. Donna Maria remember or like reveals that she's known English the whole time and hated being in the bunker with these girls. And then later they're having trouble coming up with English words. Uh, like when Kimmy says, it's a reverse rock. It's above ground rock. And she's like, oh, you mean like a crag? <laughs> <laughs> is, this, is this the episode where they say mole women, more mole problems? Mm-hmm. Oh, is that the previous Last one? Time. Damn. Damn. Close. Uh Although this one does have my favorite line, I think, of the series, which is, um, if God wanted women to talk, he wouldn't have made their mouths look so much like they're private. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that comes during the fall of John Hamm in, in right, the courtroom, right? Right, yeah. at the end, yeah. But I think there's some stuff for pretty early from when they're in the bunker. Uh, they're... So they're in the bunker, and they, the door closes because Ed Hardy rides his <laughs> four-wheeler over Hardy it. Joke. Yeah. <laughs> so they're stuck in the bunker again, and Kimmy decides to get out using the air duct, which she found the rat in, which is a callback to a previous episode. Right. And they don't have enough people to stand on their shoulders to get out. But the one girl uh, who still is kind of in the mindset of the bunker, and uh, Kimmy says... Well, you you would help us if you weren't so brainwashed. And she says, well, I like my brain being washed. It's clean. You could eat off it. <laughs> she, that, that same actress has one of my favorite moments in uh, the season when she's uh, when she's doing the crank for them when they're back in the reverend's room. And she goes, crank you for being a crank. <laughs> All it took was one bar of that. And for some reason, I had that part of that song like stuck in my head for days worth it <laughs> there was another uh su- a very subtle 30 rock tie-in when the um 
Mike Rich, the comedian who plays the guy who sings the theme song, the trailer guy. Mm. What was his, the character's name? Andrew, you told me earlier. Mr. Bankston. Yes, Mr. Bankston. He says fame is a double-edged sword, and there's a whole episode of 30 Rock called Double-Edged Sword that's like based on that concept. I mean, not about fame, but it was about relationships, but it was called Double-Edged Sword. I loved the, all the stuff in the tree with the cat, and I love that he ends up in the tree talking to the cat. I just, I don't know why, but it works so well. I'm also easily entertained by cat jokes. The constant throwing of all of his clothes up at the cat, and then that didn't work. <laughs> well, not enough to do, but and then he climbs up. I love that. Uh, yeah. Also, if you were like me, you grew up watching Looney Tunes on Nick at Night. So when Tim Blake Nelson talks about Pepe Le Pew, that was a giant oh, yeah. right in the feels for me. Yeah. Also, I, you guys were mentioning him in the last episode. Tim Blake Nelson was hilarious as that character. I know he's a problematic character, but he does that kind of like stupid yokel really, really well ever since yeah. Oh Brother, Where Are Yeah, I was going to say that oh, was oh, the God, best I thing he was in. Yeah. yeah, and so like he carried over that droll, empty line reading to Kimmy Schmidt and cracked me up. What did you guys think about the whole um, Dong is getting married Thing, the whole plot line. At first, I, when the episode started, I'm like, wait, hold on. What happened to Dong? Like, what happened with that? Like, and then all of a sudden he calls and says he's getting married. What did you guys think? I forgot all about that character in these <laughs> last three episodes. So, like, I did not, like, he did not stick with me. Well, they. Dong I, didn't stick with you. <laughs> I'll punch Travis later. Thank you. <laughs> Moving on. Um, I, I think it's, it, I think it's interesting. It can, I, it's either that they're writing that character off. Or has potential to open a whole nother um, storyline for that character. Um, yeah. Which could be very interesting, especially if um, they continue with uh, Kimmy going back to school next year and her getting her actually getting her GED. And if they're still in the class, I think that could be a very interesting dynamic. It felt like a jumping off point for the next season. And like... Not to compare it to 30 Rock for the millionth time in the podcast, but, like, 30 Rock would do that sort of stuff in their finale episodes, like, put little teasers on for mm-hmm. what would happen at the start of next season. And, like, usually that plot is wrapped up by episode four, but I'm guessing that'll be where we jump back in in a year. Don't hate me, guys. I've never seen a full episode of 30 Rock. You are going to live with I Becky and I, so it. that will be fixed quickly. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I want to be like too retrospective necessarily just because of the final episode, but I think the whole point of Kimmy Schmidt was that it was like this fun, absurdist show, and it felt to me the weakest when I was trying to fit in the sitcom box, and that's how I felt about this Dong character the whole way through, and this reveal at the end where it was like, well, we need to force Kimmy into this weird love interest, so here's Dong getting married, and that's going to create some love interest conflict heading into season two. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, every time they tried to add a romantic element in the show, it just did not work. And I wish that they hadn't even brought that into it. Like, I would have been just fine if all three of those love interests had not been in the show. I think it would have been better, even. I disagree. Um, Only for the fact that it it really brings Kimmy uh, and her naivety of the world out in within those characters especially with the first uh the teacher guy uh the tutor the charlie. tutor yeah. yeah charlie like what the hell happened <laughs> he kind of just I, at called it he was gone after that storyline um but I, I think all three of them uh really brought something out in kimmy especially with alex's line 
favorite line from the Oh, my God. The greatest line of the season, uh, the douchey upper-class boyfriend in the one episode. He wants to shoot, baby. Shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Which I don't disagree with you, Lee, but I do think that the the other women in the shelter with her, the other mole women, did that better than any of the love interests did. I, I kind of wonder, to me, the romantic subplots always felt a little shoehorned in, and I wonder if that's... Part of it is probably just I feel like they didn't do enough with those characters to make them interesting. And 30 Rock had the same problems where every year Jack had a new girlfriend and every year I went, I don't care. But I feel like a little bit of it might have been that they didn't resolve her, like, captivity and all the implications of that, including the fact that she's probably a rape victim until the end of the season. And so, like, all of that other stuff felt kind of artificial while there was this big sword hanging over the rest of the plot. I definitely agree with Bean here. And one thing I realize now, after having watched the whole season, is that there's a real sense here that in the episode I first appeared on with Travis and Lee, we talked about, Travis talked about Tina using Netflix as a comedy factory almost, testing out different ideas. And in the show, I feel like the beginning episodes, they had a lot of concepts. They were experimenting with and they realized this doesn't interest us let's move forward to something different so there's a huge amount of disjuncts but i think there won't be in future seasons learning curve i think that's the, what you're saying is possible andrew just because a lot of comedy shows take a while to find their feet if you go back and watch the first half season of 30 rock the first season of parks and recreation the first season of almost any comedy show it's going to be rough going as they try to figure out who these characters are what's funny what are people interested in it's rare to find a show that jumps right in and knows what it's doing i think kimmy's actually better than most in that regard but there's still some of the like kind of finding your sea legs to the first season of any show well, just diving into a bit of narrative theory, um, romantic relationships are all about finding out who each other is anyways, and we still are learning who Kimmy Schmidt is throughout the first season, so how are we going to know how she's going to respond in love? The writers certainly don't know. They're figuring that out right along with us, so I'm fine rolling with that for this one. Though somebody kind of said it earlier, I agree, the season might have been stronger if it focused less on Kimmy's love life and was more about her just trying to fake it till she made it in other aspects of her life. What did you guys think about the reveal of how, how they figured out that John Hamm was guilty? Do you guys remember how John Hamm was guilty? It felt very, um, felt very Perry Mason ish where you could just have like this weird courtroom stunt. Um, and suddenly like everyone's convinced, you know, that he's guilty, which obviously in a real courtroom, it doesn't work that way. I liked that. Even the one who kind of had Stockholm syndrome was like, Nope. Last straw, like, turned against him immediately. That was great. But I kind of like the the kind of Perry Mason because I think it plays on the whole, like, uh, what they were setting up for the, from the beginning with uh, Tina and her cohort being terrible lawyers. I, I don't think even the, 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 the – and him being his own attorney. I mean, like, they there was nothing go like, there was no brains up and up going on in that duo, but – like, I, I kind of like it. It kind of was kind of in the same vein and very, like, aha, we've got you now. Didn't they actually go, like, they went and found a dictionary, and they're like, that is the dictionary definition of kidnapping. It is, yeah. I don't know. Like, watching it, I was kind of disappointed that that was what they got him with. Because um, everything had been structured so well. John Hamm's courtroom scenes are just 
absolutely fucking brilliant. And then it comes along that it's just this little time code slip up. Like it's a technicality that could happen on pretty much anything. And that's what trips him up. That's how they get this guy. That just feels kind of weak. I wanted there to be something. I don't know. More I, I, I think I was hoping for something more explosive, something more clever. Uh, maybe my expectations were just too high. But it felt really forced to me just that this was being passed off as a giant reveal. I wonder if they were afraid to go too explosive because I bet they want to have the Reverend back at some point. And so if you go for something explosive that makes the audience just hate him, not that we kind of don't, but like it might have precluded using John Hamm again. Well, I don't think it's even a matter of making us hate him. I think it's just a matter of tying it up uh, narratively. Like this is the climax of the season. We've been building... People have presumably they knew people were going to binge watch the crap out of this thing, um, and to just end on that kind of note just feels. Eh, I was I wanted more. I think it was subtle, but I I liked it, and I think my favorite part was when they had John Hamm on the witness stand. They asked him when is the apocalypse supposed to be, and he said, "Well, it's going to be June six, two thousand six, at six six sixty six p.m." <laughs> there were two things I liked about that scene. One, it was hilarious because I watched the Omarosa seasons of The Apprentice, I'm not going to lie. But also, the reason that scene works, I think, is because John Hamm never breaks character for one second. Kimmy asks him, why were you auditioning for this show when you knew the apocalypse was coming? And he just says, it was going to be an awesome season. He just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling right up to the if God wanted women to talk comment, he never breaks it. And I think as much as I agree with Travis that we could have had a more dramatic and settled conclusion, that's why the scene ultimately works. And just building off of what Andrew's saying here, just a quick reminder, John Hamm has been nominated for 13 Emmy Awards and never won any. So that sucks. Good job, Emmy voters. Yep, that's why award shows don't matter. Oh, I was just going to say, and this is just my own stupidity. For the long time, I, I didn't know, I didn't figure out he was saying apprentice. I thought he said a princess. No, he did. <laughs> yeah, am I, I wasn't not, okay, so I'm not crazy. I thought for the longest time he said a princess show. And yeah. Like, what, do you, what do you mean? He said a princess. <laughs> yeah, he definitely said a princess. He was mispronouncing words all throughout his bizarre video. The only word he said correctly was karate, I think. <laughs> and jujitsu later. Oh, yes, because you have to say jujitsu, right? And, of course, the son of the Lord Jeepers. <laughs> and DJ Wayne. <laughs> I'll do that Jewish thing with a chair. Oh, my God. I think it was in the Soul Cycle episode, but Donna Maria's observation about, like, for a guy that's a Christian minister, he's super into the, uh, what was the show? It, uh, it's before my time. I can't, it's about a Jewish family. And he like references it all. The time. I don't know. It just makes School ties? Up. School ties. Yes. I got way too excited there. You <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what did you guys think of the show overall? So we kind of talked about, you guys think there's a little bit of like an inconclusive or less satisfying finale than you guys were expecting. But beyond that. What you got, Kevin? No, I don't think it was a less satisfying conclusion. I thought 
that the first season of the show was pretty brilliant. Like I said before, I thought it was at its best when it was a show about a joke every 15 seconds. And I think there are bits that I will remember and cherish in terms of, like, TV history. Like, the the hard hat, you know, I wish I was your yellow hat. The Hulkamania in the second-to-last episode. Like, there are just fantastic bits, fantastic jokes, fantastic one-liners. We will all sing Pinot Noir for the rest of our lives because of this show. So it's not a perfectly crafted television show necessarily, but I thought just such a great first season. The music stuff was really solid. I will, yeah, I love that a lot. Daddy's Boy is like the, oh the my best gosh, thank you. insular joke I can think of in, on TV in the past few years. Uh, jumping off, Kevin, I agree. For the first season of a comedy show, this was super, super solid. Like, it didn't really lose much time in finding its voice. It knew what it was about. It knew how to make its jokes. It knew where it was going. And and I feel like the second season is going to be even better because they can write it in one shot. There isn't going to be that, like, weird stuff hanging over their head with where is it going to go, NBC, Netflix, blah, blah, blah. There's not going to be references from 2010, you know. She probably wrote that. Yeah, that's true. She probably wrote that pilot so long ago. I feel like 2000 or 2000, what am I talking about? The second season is going to be, like, just more cohesive, you know, and it'll it'll make more sense. It also will be interesting to watch because this first season, I believe it was in the can when NBC sold it to Netflix. So it'll be interesting to see in the writing and production of season two if they alter it for the binge-watching ethos of Netflix, yeah. which produces and, a different kind of show. And they can just, they can push the envelope so much more. Knowing yeah. it's going on Netflix, they don't have, you know, network sensors yeah. hanging over their heads. I agree with everything that's been said, and I want to add my, one of my biggest takeaways, and that's the very last shot of the season, when Mr. Bankston tips his hat to Titus, but he's looking at the camera, so he's really tipping it to all of us. Because at first, I didn't like it, but the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. And that's because this is a show about Kimmy. And in the last episode, it's weird not to end it with Kimmy, because not only has she triumphed over her biggest antagonist, but she's also learned something along the way that what makes her unbreakable isn't that she's strong by herself because she's incredibly strong, but that she's the strongest when she has a group of friends with her, people who she can rely on. And in the final minutes of the episode, her whole world turns upside down again. Jacqueline leaves for an indefinite period of time. Dong and Titus are both revealed to have wives. Kimmy's confused. And then Mr. Bankston tips his hat to us. And it's like, he is the man who introduced every episode this season of this initial storyline. And it's like, in that gesture, he says, this story is over. Time for another story to begin. And the more I thought about it, the more I loved that. That's very poetic. That's nice. The Jiminy Cricket of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. <laughs> I'm okay with it. Uh, I will have to say, I really, I have to give it up to the actors because I, I thought that they did an amazing job with um, their characters were so full and fun and they they made their points and they, I, I just have to really give it up to all of them. I think they did a really nice job um, with everything that they were given. Can I ask, just because this was a through line for the whole season, what everyone thought about the Indian slash race thread in the final episode with Jacqueline kind of returning to her roots and accepting her, her I don't know, lifestyle as a Native American woman and 
beating the crap out of the high school band <laughs> and accepting her tribe as the wolf. I have two thoughts. The first is, well, it was racist as hell. I have major problems with that. On the other hand, I love anytime anybody makes fun of people who have mascots that <laughs> denigrate Native Americans. So with her howling like a wolf while the bands are tearing each other apart, that was amazing. Also, it was some much-needed marching band love of just, yes, these people are psychotic. They will tear each other apart if they get the chance. That's awesome. I remember that. Well, I felt like that was the payoff we were looking for. Like, in the first episode where they introduced Jacqueline as a Native American, it was like, this is very weird, very bizarre. I felt felt like that attack on the Redskins, the Indians, the Braves, like, that was the payoff we kind of needed to close the loop on how racist it really was in the beginning. I, I, I mean, I laughed at that scene. I thought the general plot line of Jacqueline is native, secretly Native American was pretty hilarious just because it was so absurd and so clearly an attack on racism, not the show being overtly... Ra- I mean, yeah. there's all sorts of, like, semiotics there about, like, how racist are you when you're using racist symbology to attack racism and, like, it's made from a white perspective and so how can we approach these things? And I've been teaching all day, so I'm super at an academic level right now. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to trail off on that one. I enjoyed it. I feel like I understood what the show was trying to do. I'm not sure it was entirely successful. It didn't ruin anything for me. I'm also a white guy. Yeah, I feel like I didn't find it racist myself, but I also think I got what they were going for, but I also think it wasn't completely successful. And this episode kind of put a button on that for me. Like when the the whole thing with like Jacqueline and the band and the stomping on the mascot head, like I'm totally against using a race as a mascot. I think that's horrible. And I, I even like the Blackhawks, like I just don't think that like a Native American tribe should be. A mascot. It's tokenism. It's tokenism, in my opinion. But um, I, that whole scene just like did not like did not ring true for me, and it really was like it, I don't know. I was I was not on board. It, but again, like Alex said, it didn't it didn't take away from my overall enjoyment of the show at all. I did enjoy that Jacqueline and what's Carol Kane's name? Lillian. Lillian. They didn't introduce themselves to each other until <laughs> Indiana. Yeah. Their whole voyage together was pretty amazing, though, up until the mascot abuse. It was wonderful just watching Jane Krakowski and Carol Kane have so many scenes together. I feel like they're two peas in a pod. That 40 years ago, she could, Jane Krakowski could have played Alice in Portsmouth in Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. I just really enjoyed the, um, the scene where they're lost and they just have made it over the bridge. And she's like, where are we? What time period are we in? <laughs> and then, oh gosh, I love Lillian's little bit right at the end. She's like, I was working on selling us for $4. <laughs> I just about died. And I was at, and I was watching it, and I was not in a place that, where I could laugh out loud, but I did. And it was great. She says how she'd never left Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. I've never left Manhattan. And she's like, how? And she's like, I never needed to. <laughs> and I mean, that that's not like a... That's not some people. There are people who have lived and never left New York, and I think that or anywhere. Like there are people who like come to their place, they stay in their place, they never leave their place. So it it just, I I just really liked the her character. Uh, One one joke that I would not forgive myself if I didn't mention was uh, when they're down in the dungeon in the hole, and uh, Cindy says that. 
Kimmy is no better than the owl who doesn't, who licks the Tootsie Roll pop and just bites it off. And she says, that's not an insult. Owls are smart and they can fly. Yeah. <laughs> I also, as we're, I think this is a good moment in the podcast to just throw out amazing moments. And I have to say, when it shows the courtroom sketch being done and then it pans out and we see that it's the Reverend doing his own courtroom <laughs> sketch. And he looks amazing yeah, in the sketch. I, I love it. I love that so much. That's true. I was just like, Oh, huh, that's really impressive. That's really impressive. How can you draw yourself so well? And I'm like, Lee, it's a TV show. Get up yourself. <laughs> there were also two CrossFit references in this episode, I have to say. Um, and I was like, yes, they read my mind. I love it when people shit on CrossFit. <laughs> that's true, because we were mad in the in the Kimmy Rides a Bike episode that they picked SoulCycle instead of CrossFit, because yeah. we think CrossFit is kind of cultish, Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Very. Probably. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. We'll have a chat. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did you guys have any other stray observations from the, the finale that you wanted to to note? Oh, wait. Did we talk about um, Titus has a wife? Yeah. Uh, uh, Andrew made mention of that, okay. but I had yeah. actually forgotten that that's, detail. A, that's, that's the big cliffhanger. And I kind of, it kind of bummed me out because I was like, I don't want to make it about that. It's like there's, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be some ridiculous story where she's a, to stay in this country or he was trying to pass. I don't know. It's like whatever justification they're going to have for Titus marrying a woman, I know it's going to annoy me. See, I was equally bummed out by that subplot, but it also made sense to me because so many of my favorite Titus moments in the season were when he was pretending to be somebody else. He's incredible at that. When he pretends to be the handyman with his tool sash, the man who can attack a bunch of teenagers in Central Park, the guy wearing the sports jersey. I forget which episode it is has the first reference to Titus's wife, but I get the feeling they've got something really good cooked up for it because they've been plotting this throughout the whole thing from as early as, I don't know, episode three or four. So if they plant the seed that early... This is something they're really excited to do about and clearly put in as the big what-the-fuck moment at the very end. So I'm actually really excited to see where they go with it. Um, I don't know what the justification is for it, um, but it better be really funny. (laughs) That gives me hope. I like your optimism. I think it could really work as long as she's not just a carbon copy of Tracy's wife from 30 Rock. Yeah, I'm guessing she's going to be from his Mississippi past, so I don't think she's going to be a New Jersey, you know, wealthy housewife, Angie-type character, hopefully. I will bet someone a quarter that they get Jennifer Lawrence to play his wife. They already showed his wife. I have lost that bet. (laughs) (laughs) I will take that bet. Do you mean Jennifer Hudson? Yeah, it looked... (laughs) Because Jennifer Lawrence is the girl from the Hunger Games. Yeah. I don't think you do. <laughs> we are both Oscar winners. That's, you could have gone confused. That's true. Oh my goodness! Interesting. Um, I don't know, Meryl. I don't know how we're going to wrap this one. Just like up. how people confuse Kevin Spacey with Denzel Washington all yeah, the time. Yeah, Always. Yeah, I think uh, I think we're pretty much done. Are you kidding? Yeah, me? But we don't have real? we don't have our three, we don't have our three questions to wrap this up. So I don't yeah, know. I don't want to be true. unceremonious. I feel like we need to go around and everyone needs to say something. What should What should we ask? What about their their favorite line from the series? Okay. Yes, everyone is going to go around and say their favorite line from the series. The whole any episode um, will give you. Seven seconds to think about it, and then we will go 
around in a circle. Um, and whoever wants to start first gets a special prize. Troll the respawn, Jeremy. Travis wins. <laughs> um, oh, sorry. My favorite line was, I can't fix America. And I hope I didn't just steal yours. <laughs> My favorite line was definitely, that werewolf needs help. <laughs> My favorite was when Robert Osborne was talking about Daddy's Boy the Musical. And he says, and coming up next on TCM, an encore presentation of Daddy's Boy the Musical. What? No! We had a deal! <laughs> My wife. <laughs> Yay! All right, Lee and Andrew, it's up, it's up to you two. Mine isn't funny, but... <laughs> My favorite line, because it packed the most emotional wallop for me, was, The world is tough, Mrs. Voorhees, but so are we. That's Kimmy in a nutshell. Yeah. You melodramatic tool. <laughs> good summation, Andrew. Leah, what you got? One. Oh, I don't know. I was trying. I was actually trying to think of one while everybody else was talking. Lee, as I'm calling back to the episode you were on, I think you really liked the line where she said where Kimmy was in Titus's restaurant and was laughing and said, "Ha ha ha! People who've never been kidnapped don't know don't know what fear is." Yes, <laughs> I, that was a great line. I was like, "That's a great line." I think that just like I loved that whole scene. So yes, I will go with that one. And just to not be ultra melodramatic, my favorite line is. You bitch! <laughs> oh, a female dog that breeds puppies? Nice compliment, Zan. <laughs> I don't miss Zan. I don't miss yeah. <laughs> Death to Zan. I mean, not really, but death to the character. Yeah. I think she could come back really strongly. And let her stay in Connecticut. Could, yeah, exactly. <laughs> My thoughts. And before we wrap up, I think we would be remiss to not say that Gina and Merrill did such a fabulous job hosting Whoa. this podcast. Seriously. For- it really was an <laughs> awesome experience for me to be on it, and I'm sure everyone else here in the pod for it would agree. So thank you guys for great work and for sticking with it. Thank Best you. line Thanks. of the series was every word these two ladies no. spoke. <laughs> we couldn't have done it without our awesome guests, so thank you guys so yes. much for coming out and sitting in my dining room yes. in a blanket fort. Are you excited that to have thing? your dining room back? Yes, and I'm glad to have sheets and furniture again. Yeah. Just building off of that, there were several episodes you two carried on your own that were absolutely phenomenal. Everything was oh. phenomenal. Yay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for yeah. listening, guys. Yeah, thanks for listening. Um, you can, if you like this, if you like what you hear, if you like these people, the vast majority, all of us, all yeah. of us can be found on the Addison Recorder, addisonrecorder.com. Check it out for all kinds of pop culture goodies and smart people writing about really interesting things so check that out we're on twitter we're on facebook um we're gonna do a season two of this we don't know who's gonna be hosting what the content's gonna be but keep an eye out for that and travis you look you want to say something (laughs) well there's this guy in baltimore named adnan i've been wondering about him he seems to be in jail i don't think he did it guys yeah well we're gonna season two. That might be season two. We're gonna. I'm gonna go to, to fly to Baltimore, talk to him in prison. That'll be season two. <laughs> Although I think someone already did that. Um, all right, and of course, as our final shout out to the Pleasure Centers, um, the amazing band that does our theme song. Yeah. We love them. Check them out on SoundCloud at SoundCloud.com/slash/thePleasureCenters. Um, and let's all just like quick go around and once again, throw out our Twitter handles. I'll start. I'm at Mercury Marie five. Meryl, where can we find you? I'm at Meryl Williams. That's M E R Y L Williams. Travis J cook. That's cook with no E at a bean tweeting at Andrew Roston R O S T A N at K Triscuit K T R I S K E T T. 
I'm at Lady Leibug, L-E-I-G-H. Awesome. And of course, you can also find the Addison Recorder on Twitter. Um, and I think that's it. Thank you so much for joining us for season one. Um, it's been a ton of fun. Thank you for listening. We are madly in love with you. Yeah.